This week on the Backtable Podcast. Right now, as we're having this conversation, it's never been a better time to dedicate yourself to musculoskeletal IR because so much hard work has already been done by leaders in interventional radiology, SIR, SIO, in order to get us recognized in the NCCN guidelines. Mm-hmm. We're already in the guidelines. That makes every conversation easier. We're not we're not a footnote. We're everything we do is the same font as everything else that's done. And now we have a seat at the table in that respect. Hello everyone and welcome to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products, developed by physicians for physicians, and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is your guest host, Jacob Fleming, and I'm excited this week to welcome our special guest, Dr. Alan Sog from Duke University Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sog. Jacob, it's my pleasure. This is fantastic. I'm a big fan of the program, uh, a big fan of everything that you're accomplishing and really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. Been been looking forward to it as well. Uh, we're excited to keep talking about some exciting topics in MSK. And I have to say the audience won't be able to see the video cameras listening to this podcast, but it's very on brand. Dr. Sog has his microphone perched on several unused kyphoplasty kits. So very, <laughs> really in line with the theme. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so today, really excited to talk about Uh, today's topic, which is building a musculoskeletal interventional oncology service line. And before we really dig into that, I'd just like to hear about your story so far. You know, where, where'd you grow up? How'd you get interested in IR? Where did your training take you and uh, to where you are now? Thank you, Jacob. So I'm originally from Florida. I grew up in Germany and North Carolina, and uh, I went to high school, college, and med school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I went to medical school at UNC Chapel Hill. I did my diagnostic radiology residency training at William Beaumont Hospital in Michigan, and I did my interventional radiology fellowship uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Cornell New York Presbyterian Hospital. I knew uh, going into medical school that I was very interested in orthopedic surgery, but what I found in medical school was that actually I was very interested in high-tech, minimally invasive procedures. And so that's been the main driving factor in my career so far. It's really exciting to hear that because I think that's a, it's a story that I think will resonate with a lot of people. Um, I know many interventional radiologists who kind of started off on the orthopedics uh, path. Um, I definitely was interested for a little bit in medical school as well. And it's exciting to see that these two specialties are really intersecting in some, some very exciting ways. So uh, you finish your training at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And what, what's the next steps from there? How did you start your career as interventional radiologist? So what's interesting is my first job was actually something very exciting that a lot of people may not have the chance to do. But if you do get a chance to work internationally, I recommend it. So coming out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, I went through the same interviews that many residents right now are going through for jobs. And I had a unique opportunity where I was recruited internationally to help build an IR program within a new teaching hospital on the Mediterranean in Istanbul. So I lived wow. there for three, I lived there for three years. Three years, okay. <laughs> huge adventure. And then I was actually in private practice in Virginia Beach. And then finally, I am now at Duke in academics. And I've been here, I'm going into my fourth year at Duke. Wow, that's a pretty uh, amazing and unique series of events. And um, I was wondering if you could just expand on the experience in Istanbul a little bit. Living in Istanbul was an adventure. This was, in every sense of the word, one of the most exciting things that I've done in my life. And from the perspective of our conversation today, which is practice building, it's a very unique opportunity. Think about being at a hospital from before day one. So there are no patients, just specialists. 
And I think this gets to my first key point when it comes to practice building is, and this, this is, this is something that I've found to be true, whether I'm practice building internationally, whether I'm practice building in private practice or whether I'm practice building in academics, it's always about the relationships first and the procedures second. So Mm -hmm. when we were over there, we were all, you were hanging out with the surgeons, with the transplant team, with oncologists, orthopedic surgeons, urologists, and everyone's getting to know each other and there are no patients to talk about. So it was actually (laughs) ideal. So when the patients finally came, it was a very natural progression and very collaborative. And that can still happen when you are in coming into a, a very developed practice as well. But the, the focus on relationships was something that I got to see early on. That's so interesting. And I'm sure having been in those, those few very different settings by now, you probably start to see a lot of similarities. Uh, and it certainly gives you an advantage when you're uh, trying to start up these, these new service lines. And so I'd like to kind of hear about when you came to Duke, what was kind of the practice looking like? What were your goals and, and how have things changed over the last few years? Coming to Duke, I was very lucky because I had the support of a fantastic chief with Dr. Charles Kim. Basically, Dr. Kim knew what introductions needed to be made from the outset and did so many things to support my growth, introduced me to the orthopedic surgeons, introduced me to our musculoskeletal radiologists, and he facilitated my schedule so that I could attend tumor boards and so that I could make it to my sort of introductory series of grand round lectures that I was doing when I arrived. And in addition, I had tremendous support as well from Dr. Enterline, David Enterline, who is known in the spine world and made many introductions within the spine community. So I was very very fortunate to have those going in. I knew that I wanted to be involved with musculoskeletal uh, interventional radiology. I didn't know that it would become its own service line or that it would grow into something where it is now, but I always knew that I wanted to be involved. And I think one of the things that doesn't change, and as you mentioned, you know, whether you're international in private practice or in academics, one of the things that doesn't change is to find the unmet need. And I, and I often, when, when people are graduating from our residency and they're going off to build their own practices, that's one of the things that I emphasize is finding the unmet need, providing it, and then growing from there. And overall, I would say the first unmet need that I found was in bone cryoablation, actually. Uh, where can we provide further pain palliation once radiotherapy is exhausted? And we have a painful bone lesion that is refractory to opioid escalation, working with radiation oncology, orthopedic oncology, and palliative care in that setting. And from there, we grew into everything that we are right now. That's awesome. And could you give our audience kind of a sense of the the smattering of services that you're offering to take care of patients? Where we are now is not where we were back then. So where I knew that I wanted this to land, I wanted for us to be doing axial and appendicular interventions. I wanted to include endovascular approaches, percutaneous ablative approaches, cementoplasty, joining forces with our surgeons to provide same session instrumentation, and eventually going into nerve blocks and regional anesthesia techniques. But it all started with the initial unmet need, which was the easiest to fulfill. Actually, one of the major victories that we had early on was that our bone cryoablation program was picked up by local news and we were interviewed. They actually filmed us doing the procedure and they interviewed our patient afterwards and that's all actually available online. Excellent. Yeah, those those opportunities are huge for practice building and you kind of have to seize the moment when they come. And I think it's interventional radiology is like a lightning rod for these kind of things because the stuff we're doing, it's, it's so cool and high tech. And, you know, when patients do really well, getting kind of the media arm involved, whether that's a local news station or the kind of hospital media is, is huge, it seems like, for promoting these kind of things. I agree, Jacob. And I'll tell you, this gets to another key point that I mentioned when I talk about practice building, which is we have to make sure that we can deliver 
service quality at the scale that we are promoting or advertising. So, for example, before the TV, before we agreed to do the TV spot, I knew that we were going to be getting a lot of self-referrals and phone calls for cryoablation consults in the in the weeks thereafter. So I made sure that I was available to receive those and to field them. <laughs> the actual aspect of doing a procedure with a camera crew in the room is both fun, but also hilariously awkward in, in so many ways. The, the interview experience was excellent. I think everything was very professionally held. You know, we happen to be at a facility that has its own media relations crew. But if you are in private practice and you're going to be doing a television interview or a television spot, I would say seek out advice and prep work before you go on camera. Uh, it will it will help you have a great experience and uh, and you'll look back at that segment happily. Yeah, I can see that being a very sort of non-intuitive thing in a lot of ways. Could you talk about one thing that I'm interested in? And, you know, we're currently in, in the IR community kind of talking about a lot of questions of ethics and things of this nature. You know, what was the process like talking to the patient about doing that procedure you know, recorded for people to see. Absolutely. You know, what's very interesting is this was, uh, this is a patient who has actually had her entire medical history documented on the news. So uh, I was actually asked to perform a procedure and she requested that we document this to educate others about wow. bone cryoablation. So this was patient driven, actually. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I think... We have to realize, you know, this is first and foremost about patients. And I think a lot of patients, I hear this time after time from patients who've had some of these minimally invasive procedures we offer, they want to get the word out and for people to know that there are solutions for these very difficult problems. These patients have been told over and over again, there's nothing to do, you know, we'll just up the dose on the opioids and kind of hope for the best. I agree with you. How often do we see that, right? The week after we did that segment, we were getting numerous phone calls, phone calls from other specialists excited about this opportunity, phone calls from patients asking for this, asking if there are candidates, our clinic filled up. And that gets to another key point, I think, with practice building, which is something that I emphasize to our residents, which is not, and this is going to sound very counterintuitive, but I think that when we clarify it, it'll make more sense. Not doing procedures is a major part of early practice building. So when, when doctors refer a patient to you as a specialist, they want to know that you are assessing that patient and making a decision independently and making recommendations accordingly. What doctors, what referrers often don't want, and one of the unmet or the unspoken needs of a referrer is, they want to make sure that they're not destining a person to a procedure if they're sending them to you for evaluation. So you have to have a rate that you're saying no to some patients when things are not indicated and, the, and that develops trust. And similarly, this, this is almost more important for patients who self-refer themselves for your evaluation. You have to make sure that you are now a source of referrals to your team members. For us, it's very straightforward because I happen to have benefited from good timing where I was able to help form two groups at Duke. One is the orthopedic oncology bone metastasis team. And I also helped in the formation with our colleagues for the Duke Cancer Institute spine metastasis team. So I'm the IR member of both of those teams. It's very easy for me to reach out to the other specialists in the group. And not only am I providing care, but I'm also a point of access for patients and a point of outreach uh, for patient education for both of those teams. That's fantastic. And I, I was hoping you would talk about this uh, with, with those two groups in specific. You know, what did the genesis of those look like? From what you said, you had quite a bit of support coming in to make these things happen. But what were kind of the initial conversations like with those groups? There is a moving trend towards multidisciplinary care. And the timing worked out. But if, uh, if any listeners are in a setting where these teams are not available or have not yet been created, 
And this is your chance. You can pull together several specialists and discuss things such as uh, coordination of care, same day evaluations, coordination of imaging needs, a tumor board. These are some of the some of the fundamental things that elevate patient care and you have an outcome that's greater than the contributions than the sum of the contributions. Excellent. I I think I agree completely. It's it's clear to see that healthcare is heading in this direction. I think in academic medicine, we're a little bit biased, you know, it's in some ways kind of baked into uh, the institution or perhaps a little bit easier to facilitate. But I think it's something that's uh, becoming more important in the private practice world, too. Right now, as we're having this conversation, it's never been a better time to dedicate yourself to musculoskeletal IR because so much hard work has already been done by leaders in interventional radiology, SIR, SIO, in order to get us recognized in the NCCN guidelines. Mm -hmm. We're already in the guidelines. That makes every conversation easier. We're not, we're not a footnote. We're, everything we do is the same font as everything else that's done. And now we have a seat at the table in that respect. That's, that's a great point uh, and something we should emphasize to our listeners who are interested in this as well. A lot of the services that we're talking about are included in these NCCN guidelines. And so you're not just a cowboy going up to your oncologist and saying, hey, I can stick a needle in this thing and try to make it better. We do have really quite solid data behind uh, many of these treatments. Obviously, the question of continuing to get good data is, is going to be really important going forward as well. There's one more point, you know, you'll remember I mentioned not doing procedures is a very important point of early service line growth. You've got to do procedures. However, I would say for someone who's just coming out of training and going to do their first few cases, you definitely want to make sure that the cases you do are ones that you feel comfortable doing and that you're using instruments that you're comfortable using. So for example, if you are at a program that uses, let's talk about kyphoplasty, because I know that's also very, uh, very close to your interest. If you're at a program that's teaching kyphoplasty and you have the opportunity to use all the different vendors, then please do that before you go out into training, because when you go out to training, you may be using one that isn't the same as what you used the majority of times. So make sure you're comfortable and reach out for help to your mentors. Yeah. Great, great point, uh, especially with the kyphoplasty. There's a lot of great vendors out there making making good products. And, uh, you know, probably people will come to have their preferences. We had a great discussion on Twitter recently about how to approach a, a specific case. And, um, you know, it's kind of the ask 10 radiologists, get 10 different opinions uh, sort of thing. It is great. There is no kind of wrong answer to it. But if you're not, if you're only using, you know, brand A, you're not really getting exposure to what brand B may offer that may be better for a certain approach. And so just kind of thinking about this as I'm talking, I do think it's important to talk about the nature of industry uh, and, and kind of training. And I, I know that you recently had Dr. Beal down to the Duke campus to, to help educate some of the IR residents uh, with an industry-sponsored lab. Can you talk about that whole process and, and what was it like uh, for the residents? We're all big fans of Dr. Beal. I think present company included. This was a, <laughs> yeah. this was a, a little bit, <laughs> this was, a little bit. <laughs> this was a huge uh, opportunity for us. And this was actually jointly an educational organization that we actually did jointly with our neurosurgery colleagues. Uh, this comes, this came actually two to three years after we had already been doing SpineJack. So actually, we're the first in the Carolinas to do SpineJack, and that was at the VA. So at the VA, you know, our interventional radiologists cover the VA as well. The two facilities are directly across the street from each other. One of the major benefits that we've had in terms of practice growth at the VA is that all the people we collaborate with at Duke are also practicing at the VA. So for us, it's been a very convenient collaboration. And it actually uh, allowed us to be the first in the Carolinas to do the spine jack, which was back in 2019. Wow. That's awesome. And I, I think, uh, you know, probably a lot of people don't think about practice building when or associate that with the VA. Um, you know, many of us have rotated there as med students or, or residents. I, I'm curious, I think a lot of people would say, isn't there a ton of red tape at the VA? 
Uh, you've had success implementing, you know, a, a specific therapy with an implant that kind of comes with its own regulations and things like what was that experience like? The experience was very good. And, and this was one that achieved sort of within the VA news media, some attention and some attention within very high levels within our VA system. I think we got I think we got lucky because we just have tremendous support within our department at the VA, within the radiology department, uh, especially, you know, under the leadership of Claire Haystead. At the time, she really spearheaded a lot of uh, a lot of help to get th these systems in the VA. A lot for those of us who are interested in musculoskeletal interventional radiology, we will quickly find that our services are needed within the VA system. One of the one of the next growth pathways that we are working on right now is regarding RF denervation for knee, hip and shoulder um, mm -hmm. arthritis pain. And, you know, maybe we'll get to it a little bit later in this conversation. But remember when we mentioned, you know, find the unmet need and grow from there. The unmet need was in cancer. But now the current growth areas are in a lot of areas, including nerve blocks and sort of arthritis pain. So I think all the more relevant to the VA population as well. Absolutely. And it's uh, it, it really, I think, speaks to knowing the patient population, the need, like you were saying. And, you know, clearly osteoarthritis is it's not going anywhere except up. Same with osteoporosis, same with bony metastatic disease. And these are all things that we're interested in and we're making happen. But you kind of have to, it's really easy, I think, uh, from, from my perspective, to get excited about all these things and say, I want to do all these things and make them all happen. And it sounds like you're saying you, you need to be aware of what the local needs are for your population. That is, that is 100% correct. But I'll tell you, there, it wasn't all easy. You know, there are setbacks that occur. I think the biggest setback and this was a major challenge that we had to overcome in early practice building was the pandemic. How much of our practice building occurs face to face, going to tumor board, talking to our referring physicians and how and if you're in a hospital based setting and now patients are worried about coming to hospital early in the pandemic, that was a major setback. And I think it's now come to the point where that is kind of abiding. And I think we're getting back into our usual practice patterns. But the main message is for those who are building this service line, your progress is measured in months to years. This isn't something that you're going to arrive and declare that you can do all these procedures and then start doing extremely high-end procedures the next day. This is definitely something where, even myself included, I spent weeks to months attending tumor board, learning the language you know, that is used here. We all have a basic common language, but all every specialty has its own local languages too. That's, that's something I'd like to talk about if that's all right. Uh, you know, kind of this aspect of communication and a lot of the cases you share, uh, they're very technical and very specific. They use a lot of anatomic and surgical terminology. It's maybe a little bit less known to radiologists just because it's not kind of the the vocabulary we use. And so I wanted to hear about how did you go about trying to learn this different language and how is it, how's it come into play collaborating with the orthopedic and, and surgical colleagues? That's a very, very important question, Jacob. And I'll, and I'll tell you, as interventional radiologists, we work with so many different specialties that we kind of learn the language that, that each one speaks and we speak to them in that language. And that's, and that's how we're best, that's how our services are best communicated. The first example that comes to my mind, by the way, on this topic is that SIO, a Society of Interventional Oncology, created lectures actually devoted to how to speak the language of oncology at Tumor Board. And I, the one that comes to my mind is the one by Dr. Aaron Jerry at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he speaks to this and teaches this. I would say that the best way to pick up the language is to go to your local setting where you're listening to your provider's your referring physicians present and talk about cases. And as it, and as I mentioned, when it comes to the relationship that you're building, a lot of interventional radiologists are not going to have the, this uh, lexicon built into their formalized training pathway. We're getting there. And I think that probably within the next few years with efforts such as the SIO MSK masterclass, I think we're going to have society level formalized training. And I think 
those who are interested in these procedures are going to seek out training pathways. And, and certainly you have done that. But I would say that be flexible and learn what terminology and what conditions are important to your team. For example, for us in the neurosurgery side, the SIN score regarding mm -hmm. potentially unstable spine lesions, very, very important. Uh, and that is something that when we're presenting patients, it's very quick upfront. I include this when I present patients, uh, which essentially is a my my Twitter cases are an extension of my educational teaching files. Mm -hmm. When I include that terminology, it's intended to just show the learner that there is language out there that we need to be aware of. Although that does that, that does remind me, I should probably make a tutorial about some of these systems. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be awesome because you know I think it's I always appreciate the level of depth that you go into in the cases. I think it, sometimes it does make me think of the classic clip from uh, the Good Burger movie uh, of, oh uh, yeah, I know some of these words, <laughs> but the way that you present, the way that you present them, it's not intimidating. It's kind of saying, you know, this grading scale is out there. Smith-Peterson interval is a thing, you know? And so it's kind of exposing us to these, these ways of looking at things that, like you said, is not really built into our lexicon and training. So I think I think it's awesome. A tutorial would be fantastic. I think that's on the list now. I think that should happen. But I will say I'm not the only one. And I will say that there's a lot of great content that I learn from. You know, another thing that I have done with my teaching, because I teach a wide variety of learners, some are at the medical school level. And one thing that can make it very hard to engage with interventional radiology at a very early level of learning is the fact that the imaging doesn't look as familiar as an anatomic model. Right. And so one of my big pushes in my teaching file, especially when I'm showing cases, is I want to have a, an exact anatomic model that I can demonstrate what anatomy we're heading through. This actually was very helpful in clinic too. So I would often bring an anatomic atlas into clinic and demonstrate to the patient what the anatomy looks like and show their imaging side by side so that it makes more sense. But it serves a, a great example for teaching. And, and I think that I include that as much as I can in the teaching cases that I have in my educational content online. Yeah, that, that's great. And I was really hoping uh, to get into that is that the visual aspect of the cases you share, we're very used to seeing visuals on social media in the context of interventional radiology and uh, spine surgery and all these kind of things are very visual. You can see the pre and the post. And yet that with that comes the lexicon that we've developed over years through med school, residency, fellowship and practice that we kind of understand what we're looking at implicitly. And like you said, depending on your audience, that may not be the case, especially when you're talking about, you know, the most important person in the process, who is the patient, mm -hmm. often are not really going to understand what you're looking at when you're showing them an x-ray, definitely not an MRI. <laughs> and so sure. what I love about a lot of these cases you share is these very high quality uh, 3D graphics. Could you tell about, you know, uh, where do you get those from or how, how do you generate those and what's your whole process? How can, how can we incorporate that as well? For me, the process that goes into creating a teaching case that I'm going to show first goes into we don't want to overload with information. You know, there's a finite amount of attention that someone is willing to invest when they're scrolling past something. And it really needs to catch the eye and communicate maybe one key point. When you're choosing an, an anatomic uh, figure to demonstrate that, I like the 3D ones. I feel like many illustrators can create 3D images that's a very expensive process. I really like iPhone and iPad-driven anatomic atlases. And yeah, there, are, awesome. there are a wide variety of them. They're very convenient. You can pick your favorite. I am paid by none of them. I use the visible, <laughs> I use the visible body one. Oh, yeah. I use that in med school quite a bit. I that's use, a good, I have, good. Totally. I have used that. I would say, you know, for if I if I were creating a care package for someone going into MSK interventional radiology, I would throw in the anatomic atlas of choice plus some kind of another very imaging specific anatomic atlas to look not only at nerves, but just in general at general anatomic relationships, but especially nerves. And for that one, you know, I'm not endorsed by them, but I use eAnatomy, the Emmaus eAnatomy mm -hmm. program. Yeah. You'll use that one too? 
Yeah, it's it's one we use quite a bit in residency. Um, definitely uh, learned a lot of anatomy that way, and then still from time to time have it open on call. So uh, shout Absolutely. out to eAnatomy. I, I think I think a lot of radiology residents uh, get some use out of it. And I am also not paid. Open to the idea. No, I'm just I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> it's it's a great it's a great resource, and you know we're expected to be experts of anatomy. So it's sure. something that we also always need to be refining. The the actual creation of that slide, by the way, I'm I'm really happy that that you uh, enjoy how they look, but it's going to be very anticlimactic. I basically take an image that I like, and then I put it into PowerPoint. And I'm mm-hmm. also not funded by PowerPoint, by the way. <laughs> and and I and then I put I put arrows on it, and it, it's I just intend for it to to show one very simple thing. Like the last one we did very recently was showing a, a unipedicular access to end plate reduction, for example, and just throw an arrow on there. I I am always open to adjusting that, and I'm excited to to hear more feedback about it. But so far, it's worked well. That's great. You know, sometimes a lot of times simpler is better, uh, and it's it's kind of encouraging to hear that your process is not you know this whole labor intensive sort of thing. I do want to add though, I think. Our ability as interventional radiologists to visually communicate what we do and the end result is another key aspect to sustaining a service line. For example, I will spend significant effort creating images of a procedure immediately afterwards to put into the brief op note and also to update the referring physician as to the results. And what I have found is that it's very often reciprocated. You know, even for a simple preoperative embolization of a bone metastasis in an area that is not amenable to tourniquet, which is a common uh, indication for doing it, like a pelvic metastasis of Mm -hmm. RCC, I will often get a quick text or a quick email saying that was an amazing embo. You know, the the field was so dry. And that, that is a very rewarding experience, but it comes with developing that relationship, which comes back to it's about the relationships before it's about the procedures. Absolutely. And such a great point, too. I think as radiologists, we're, we're so interested in images. We nerd out about it all the time. You know, we share cases. It, and it's good to know that we can do that with other specialists and kind of nerd out with them. And, yeah. But we're developing that, that relationship and doing the most important thing, which is supporting patient care. I think as well, you know, on the topic of pre-op embolization, this was very early on something that I wrote a book chapter on with our orthopedic oncologists. And I want to emphasize uh, research and sort of academic pursuits as being a form of networking, especially in early practice building for people who are new to a certain facility. Not only are you refamiliarizing yourself with the literature, but you are also creating something that has academic value, academic currency, it's a publication, and everyone's on there together and you're hearing feedback and you're even educating about, for example, in this case, embolization being used as a monotherapy for palliation once radiotherapy has been exhausted. Yeah, what a, what a great point. And I think it's uh, in this specific area, musculoskeletal interventional, it's going to be extremely crucial because there are so many different specialties involved the future of kind of text education in this area is going to be multidisciplinary. And I, I saw you mention recently this uh, textbook that's on the horizon. I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but skeletal meta, metastatology. <laughs> for yes. that a little. Yeah. So yes. uh, tell, tell us about that experience. And uh, do we have any idea when readers can expect that to be on their bookshelves? I'm going to tell you something. I'm also not funded by this textbook. However, that's where this chapter is headed, and I get to see all the chapters from behind the scenes as they're being uploaded. I get to see all the titles. I'm very excited for what this what this book is going to bring to us and to all specialists who are interested in this are- arena. Yeah, when I heard about that, I thought this is I, I don't think this is something that we kind of have a consolidated resource for yet. It seems like mm-hmm. a, a huge need. I I totally agree. So, it's been great talking about kind of this whole process, a lot of pearls for practice growing and everything. And I want to hear about some of the next frontiers in musculoskeletal interventional oncology. Kind of maybe you could say, 
one thing kind of at a societal or specialty level that you're excited about the direction this is going and something in your practice specifically that you're excited to, to build up? Absolutely. In our practice specifically, what I'm, what I'm very excited about is our increasing collaboration with our surgeons in IR to do same session fixation with internally cemented screws. So ablation, osteoplasty, and then reinforcement with internally cemented screws. I think that those that collaboration for me is personally very exciting. I think at a society level, as you mentioned, the first thing we're going to see is standardization of training. This is probably going to happen within the next five to 10 years. We're going we're already seeing that residents even here. We're already seeing that residents who are interested in getting training in musculoskeletal IR are seeking out those those pathways. And Jacob, you've done the same thing personally as well. Mm-hmm. So I think this resonates with your experience. Absolutely. Totally. And, and I think we're going to see more efforts at a society level, such as the SIO MSK masterclass. We're going to see more outreach from a society level. And I think we're going to see a gradual introduction of instrumentation, standardization of instrumentation training for IRs. And for many IRs, the spine jack is kind of the first musculoskeletal instrumentation that they will be implanting. And I think that I think that the trend is moving in that direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just wanted to jump in on that. I, I agree completely with everything you said, and especially that last part about the spine jack being kind of our first foray into instrumentation. And what I'm interested, actually, I'm very interested in your thoughts on this too. The, I think that A very big topic is delivery of care and access to care. And that is where training becomes very important. You know, we're providing care in major academic centers, but there's a tremendous need outside of those centers. And that's why training is going to increase access to high-end musculoskeletal interventional radiology. I I agree completely. And uh, one one example that I would bring this back to is with uh, vertebral augmentation. There's obviously a lot of talk about this among IRs. I see a lot of case sharing, which I think is great. And to be honest, it's not to knock any other specialties, but uh, on LinkedIn, for example, I don't really see that extent of kind of thoughtful discussion about how to approach this kind of case. And so over the last few years, I've seen this expand uh, with you, Dr. Beal, and, and many others kind of sharing these cases. I think it's great for our specialty. We're really refining the technique. And um, I would like to add that uh, I, hopefully SIR in particular will kind of uh, expand the offering of their training courses uh, at their meetings so that the IRs who are insinuated in these communities already can become the experts of vertebral augmentation and, and help the communities they serve, just like you were saying. Absolutely agree. I think uh, we have to also look at where our collaborators are taking their specialties and oncology is headed towards precision medicines and immuno-oncologics. And we have a big role in drug delivery. And there are many ways that we can deliver drugs to targets within the body. So I think as a broad overarching theme, we're going to see more of that. Absolutely. And we've already kind of given a few shout outs to SIO already, but uh, do want to emphasize uh, for anyone who's interested in this, they have just some fantastic uh, offerings, both related to IO in general and definitely musculoskeletal IO. What do you think is going to be happening within the cement world? We've seen a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of developments within cements. There's even mentionings of research into radioactive cements, wow. um, cements with longer working times. I think I think we inject PMMA, but I think that we're probably going to be injecting something else more commonly 10 years from now. I think it's definitely possible. I'm not uh, enough of a, I did take one class on polymer chemistry in college, and that's about the extent of my biomaterials expertise. But I will say, I think that the, the way we look at and use cement does have to evolve. Uh, one area that I've seen this is there's at least one cement on the market now that is, uh, it's high viscosity and has some barium beads in it. Dr. Mm-hmm. Beal and I discussed this uh, in, in a recent podcast. That's a great way to improve the safety model of, of the cement that we're delivering so that we're um, avoiding uh, entravization 
catching it as it happens and stopping and just making mm-hmm. the procedure safer. And one other thing that I think I personally think will probably be the next paradigm shift specifically for vertebral augmentation will be uh, vertebral body stints. And I know uh, you, you've discussed this some as well on your Twitter. So I think this could merit definitely a podcast of its own, but if we can get the vertebral body stints uh, in the US, you know, uh, barring FDA approval, basically this can enable a technique called the SAFE technique, the stint screw assisted internal fixation. And I think it, the reason I think this is going to be the next uh, evolution is that this then has the potential to treat a three column uh, injury or a sta- stabilize in a three column manner for extensive metastatic disease or a really bad, really bad osteoporotic fractures. And so right now, the spine jack, I think, has filled a nice part of that by uh, enabling height restoration. But being able to use cannulated pedicle screws to further stabilize the anterior and middle column by way of the posterior column, I think is is going to be huge. I don't know if you agree on that. I'm, I'm excited. I hope we'll be able to, to do that stateside before long. Absolutely. I think there is there is a tremendous hunger for for more knowledge about these techniques in the U.S. And there's a lot that's being developed in Europe right now. And I think we're all watching and, and very excited. Yeah, I think for sure. It, it typically tends to be the case. It seems like Europe and Asia are a little bit ahead of us in some ways. You know, they, their systems of healthcare delivery, I think, are, are, are a little bit different as well. Um, and that actually goes back to the history of vertebroplasty, which is kind of interesting. I'd advise anyone to look that up and kind of hear about how that happened in France. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of nice. We get sort of a preview of the things that are coming through the pipeline and kind of, you know, hoping that Santa will will bring us something under the tree this year. <laughs> I know. So, so Jacob, I was listening uh, last week to the the podcast by Dr. Prologo that he had done with Backtable and just a true visionary, I would say, mm-hmm. in, in so many respects. But it reminded me of another key teaching point which is in early practice building, we need to be very receptive to seeing patients who are sort of undifferentiated. So yeah. I will often receive an email, for example, from, from palliative care that says, this person is having intractable pain. Would you mind seeing them? And we have to be comfortable with that ambiguity. We should, fee- we should welcome that patient into our clinic and we should assess. And if we can find pen generators that we can treat, then we should. And if there are other ones that are better suited, for example, for an intrathecal pain pump, then we become the source of referrals. The teaching point here is, you know, remember, we're starting from that unmet need, but the service grows out from there. And pain palliation is a very natural outgrowth of what is what starts as sort of a musculoskeletal IR service line. Pain is definitely the next frontier. And I would refer everyone to Dr. Prologo's Backtable podcast, where he covers a lot of a lot of very important takeaways. But one valuable one, which one valuable point which he made, which resonates so strongly with what we do here at Duke, is now with modern image guidance, we can reach targets within the body that were previously not reachable. We are literally making contributions to the field of pain palliation that have not been made before because of our ability to safely and consistently and verifiably target nerves within the body. And so I think there is a tremendous unmet need in that respect. And those who are growing their service lines will find that they can very naturally grow into that space and very collaboratively with their anesthesia colleagues, because this is a non-overlapping service. It's great. Yeah. You, you know, I think that uh, depending on the context, it's likely that, you know, anesthesia or PM&R may be covering kind of the uh, interventional pain aspect for the most part. And it's, I, I love that point because even if that is the case, there are a lot of ways where we can enhance what they're offering and do something that they're not offering. Just the other day, I was on call and uh, had a patient who's kind of similar situation had come in with intractable pain and there was nothing acute going on in the CT, but clearly this, this tumor was causing a lot of that. And this, you know, it's a very simple kind of thing for us to say, well, we can do a celiac plexus block, see if they're a candidate for celiac plexus neurolysis or cryoneurolysis. And that's, this is not for us 
uh, you know, one of the more complicated things that we can do, but it's kind of an issue of awareness and it just, it obviously this goes back to practice building, but knowing kind of where you can fit in is, is really important. As I, as I watch, you know, colleagues in IR build practices in all their various respective areas of interest, you know, the, the ones that we hear about a lot are PAD and uterine fibroid embolization. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find in the musculoskeletal interventional space that lends itself very much to service growth within IR is the fact that the options we provide, not only as we mentioned earlier, are already in the NCCN guidelines. So that hard work has already been done by those before us. But we can often offer services that overlap and do not interrupt ongoing care plans. And at a at a tertiary or quaternary care facility uh, where there are ongoing clinical trials, where you may be the best option to palliate someone's pain without kicking them off of a clinical trial, where you may be the one who can provide additional tissue for next generation sequencing in addition to pain palliation, and where you can work collaboratively without interrupting an ongoing chemotherapy and preserving that line of chemotherapy. These are all very natural ways to collaborate and to enable the care plans of people that you're working with. And I would say, you know, early on in a service line growth, rather than thinking about competition Really, it needs to be more about collaboration and enabling. Those are going to be the ways that you establish yourself and what you can do. Yeah. You know, the old saying of you catch more flies with honey, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. It's just that it's easy to go in and, you know, we can beat our chests and say, we should be the ones doing this. We're the best to do it. Send me patients. (laughs) Kind of good, good luck with that probably versus approaching and saying, how can we collaborate this? I want to help patients that you have who you're not really sure what to do. Sure. And, you know, Jacob, how many times have you seen, you know, we work very closely with our radiation oncology friends. Mm -hmm. I would say that a very large percentage of patients that I see are referred from radiation oncology. And similarly, I send many patients for consolidation radiation as well. And a lot of that is, is baked into our care pathways, right, through tumor board. But a lot of it, uh, you know, if for patients who are coming into the system fresh, those are those are relationships that I'm maintaining um, with our with our collaborators and sending patients for that care. Absolutely. And like you've said several times, it it really is a two way street uh, relationship and it comes down to that relationship. But showing up at the tumor boards, learning the language and just being there is such a huge part of the process. One more point that I wish I had made earlier is the importance of calling your patients. I will often call patients the night before a major procedure, just for a pep talk, make sure that all questions have been answered and we kind of understand what to expect. Oftentimes your patients are gonna have trouble sleeping the night before your procedure. You know, we, mm-hmm. we often forget, but those of us who have been patients or had family in the hospital, that's the psychology that, that goes into it. Let's use vertebral augmentation as an example. After a kyphoplasty, I often like to be the one to take the first steps with them after the procedure, not just because I love seeing complete mechanical pain relief, but also because I want to make sure that there's pain relief. Because at that moment in time, that's a very valuable data point for me personally in helping to manage that person's pain. Was there radicular pain? Was, is that improved? Furthermore, calling the patients afterwards, you know, it's it's, it's no secret. Many people will catch me in my office late at night calling patients. You know, I'll, I'll call patients who I did a procedure on that day or two days before, and I will ask them how they're feeling. What better way to know how patients do after your procedure than to call them and to figure it out? I, I will ask, did you get the medicines that I wrote for you? Do you have any questions about how to take them? Do you have any needs that I, that I haven't been able to, to meet? And I will provide that in my post-procedure update email to the team. I'll say, we were smooth sailing for your patient's procedure. Here's an example of what it looked like before and after. I just checked in with them. They have complete pain relief. Thank you for the opportunity to care for your patient. And that goes a long way. That communication is the nuts and bolts, just a very small snapshot into my life developing and maintaining service lines in musculoskeletal IR. 
Uh, it's fantastic. I especially, I love that last point, such a simple thing to reach out to the patients and, and just be involved with them. And, and aside from, you know, the obvious kind of practice building aspect of that, this is why we went into medicine to take care of these patients and be part of their, their path toward healing. And I, I think you've given our audience just a lot of inspiration, a lot of things to think about incorporating into their own practices. IR in general, but hopefully as well, musculoskeletal oncology. I have one more key point. Please. So this is, uh, this is about developing a service line while you are in a hospital setting. Okay. So for those who are trying to develop a service line while you're in a hospital setting, get an idea for when the referring services round during the day and try to time your rounds with their rounds so that you casually run into them and then you can update them about your mutual patients. That worked really, really well early on. It was very, very, uh, it was it was just unscripted. It was very casual at first. And then when I got a sense of what time everyone rounds, it was, you, you get referrals that way. And I think that when, by the way, you know, when we mentioned when the pandemic occurred and, and care was a lot more, um, sort of people were at a distance from each other, some of that was lost for a while. But mm -hmm. early on, those interpersonal relations where you're seeing patients on rounds and your rounds are colliding with the primary team's rounds and you're discussing patients, that is a very rich environment to contribute to the patient's care in real time and to get referrals. Just another great pearl there. I love that. And uh, something we can try to implement during our busy days. But, you know, I think as radiologists kind of thinking about rounds, it's like, oh, man. But if you think about it in that way, it can be, um, you know, a source of practice development. But also I find those kind of exchanges very gratifying. You know, you're working together with the rest of the team. You're part of the team. You know, you're not just down in the reading room or in the IR suite. It makes you feel like you're rightfully so part of this this big system. Well, very uh, much fantastic. Very I, I just want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Sog. This has been a, a great conversation. I think we've identified multiple topics for future episodes, so uh, we'll, we'll be staying in touch. Uh, any final words before we leave? Jacob, it's my pleasure. I want to mention to all listeners, you know, I'm a fan of Backtable as well, and I feel like it is a, a true privilege to contribute to this community, and I continue to contribute by being available. So if anyone has any questions, they should please reach out to me. I'm very reachable over Twitter. And I also want to mention... There's one topic that we haven't talked about that we don't have time for today, but it is our next service line that we have been growing here at Duke, which is the thyroid intervention service line. So stay tuned for that. You know, we have work coming up with thyroid RFA, goiter embolization, and cryoablation of locally recurrent disease. And hopefully, if there's a chance to talk about this in the future, then we will discuss how we got started with this and how it relates to everything else that we're doing. So we'll stay tuned. Absolutely. Definitely stay tuned. Uh, no question that'll be on the horizon. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Sog. It was great talking to you. Uh, thanks for taking the time. And for our listeners, we'll see you on the next Backtable podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed, article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson, and Delaney Aguilar, social media and PR by Anne Dang, and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.